Would you stand as we read our scripture uh, together today? This comes from the book of Jude, verses 17 to 23. But you must remember, beloved, that the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, they said to you in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit, But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by flesh. This is the word of the Lord. If you're joining us online, good morning to you as well. And that worship guy looks like he comes from a real handsome family, so it's good that he's here. Uh, Growing up, uh, we lived out in the cornfields of Illinois, rural Illinois. In fact, the area that we grew up was not too different than this area here in Kansas. But uh, we, you know, kind of lived in an area in which there weren't neighborhoods. There were just kind of pockets of houses every few miles. And so every few miles, you'd find two or three houses next to each other. And so we lived across from a, a family called the Greens. And Mr. Green uh, was almost every day outside mowing his lawn. Uh, that was the thing that he did. It didn't need mowed every day, but he was mowing nonetheless. I think his wife didn't want him in the house. And so he got on the lawnmower and just drove around for a while. Um, Also growing up, my younger brother and I, well, all my brothers, but specifically my younger brother and I had an obsession with bottle rockets. Anybody else grow up with an obsession to bottle rockets? Okay. And so are those even legal in Kansas anymore? Can you buy bottle rockets? Well, yeah, can't buy anything in Illinois. So uh, we would bootleg them in. Anyways, we had an obsession with bottle rockets. And so the other thing that we did because we were poor Christian homeschool kids. We play outside all the time. We didn't have TV or video games or whatever. So we would dig holes in my parents' yard, and we'd play war or army or whatever. And so we started digging holes in our tree line that looked uh, directly across the road to Mr. Green's house. And what we would do is we'd dig these little foxholes, and we'd get a sheet of plywood, and we'd cover it with tree branches and stuff. And so we'd get all the way down into the ground. We'd have our little... uh, our little pipe sticking out, and we would shoot bottle rockets across the road at Mr. Green as he's mowing his yard. Um, Some of us are like, yeah, I want to go do that right now. Glades is like, I'm there with you. So what was, you know, we never hit him, okay, before you, you know, shame on you. We never hit Mr. Green, but the funniest thing would happen is we'd shoot the little bottle rocket across the road, right? Mr. Green, he'd kind of stop for a second, turn the mower off, and he'd get off of it and just kind of look at it. Like, what's it? What's going on? And he'd, he'd pull open the hood of the mower and, you know, check everything out as if he knew how to fix his own lawnmower. He had no clue. All right, so he shuts the hood. He'd get back on, start it back up, do some more. We'd shoot another one over there. And we would just do this for hours. And we'd just hide in our little foxhole, just snickering, right? And so just that tiny seed of doubt created all kinds of disruption in his, in his world. The reason I tell that story is because I, I think the same thing is true in the strategy of our enemy. I don't think Satan wants to convince you that God isn't real. I just think he wants to convince you that God isn't who he is. A tiny seed of doubt can create a massive disruption. 
It's the reason that Jude writes his letter, because he wants to counteract these tiny seeds of doubt with truth. Confusion will always lead to compromise. We read just a few minutes ago our text for this morning. Let me read just a few verses at a time, and then we'll unpack it together. Here's what it says. Verse 17, but you, dear friends, must remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ predicted. They told you that in the last times there would be scoffers whose purpose in life is to satisfy their ungodly desires. These people are the ones who are creating divisions among you. They follow their natural instincts because they do not have God's spirit in them. Now, these three verses are sort of a recap of where we've been. If you've joined us in this series on Jude, you know that these three verses sort of summarize the text that we've just gone through. It was predicted that these kinds of falsehoods would be circulated. This was part of what the apostles taught the early church. These things are coming. It's not strange that when there's a ton of momentum in in a movement, those who are on the outside looking in want to get a piece of that pie and capitalize on it. So that's what these false teachers were doing. The momentum that the gospel in the early church had, they wanted a piece of it. And so they created their own version of the gospel, and they began to circulate it and teach things that were not true. But Jude reminds us that these falsehoods create factions. They are what create divisions among you, he says. And he'll characterize these teachers, again, we've talked about this, but he'll characterize them in these three ways. Number one, they're unwise about their time. He says, in the last days, there's this eschatological impact. They're unwise about time. Number two, he challenges their character. These people are scoffers. They live insulting good instruction. And number three, he challenges their lifestyle. They live only to satisfy their own desires. They're impulsive. They're instinctual. And throughout his letter, Jude has repeatedly given both a call to contend and a condemnation of sexual sin. Both a call and a condemnation. He's called us, church, to contend well for the faith. He says that in in verse 3. But he's condemned throughout the letter all these different versions of sexual sin. And we've kind of jumped over those things until today. Today's the day. Today's the day where it's really awkward you're sitting next to your mom, high school boy. Very sorry. But today's the day. We need to talk about it. Because it's hard to contend when you live in compromise. It is hard to contend when you live in compromise. Now, it's really easy to go through a text like Jude, or in fact, throughout all of the the Bible, and to cherry pick the parts of it that we really find easy for us to handle. And certainly, Jude condemns, just as the rest of the Bible does, homosexual activity. But I don't believe for one second that that is the most pressing sexual issue in the church today. In fact, I don't even think it makes the top three. I think, church, that we need to focus our time elsewhere today. And I do believe the Bible speaks with clarity, authority, and continuity about the subject of homosexuality, but it does not do us any good to sit here and talk about something that 98% of the room already agrees with anyway. We need to get real about our own sin and our own struggle. The idolatry of heterosexuality is as much a sin as homosexuality. And so let's not rank our righteousness based on our sexual bent. Let's not decide that we're somehow better because we don't have a similar struggle. Jude will give us four charges to contend. Number one, he says, to build each other up in your most holy faith. 
Number two, he says to keep each other safe in God's love. Number three, he says to be a people of mercy. Number four, he tells us to snatch others away from the flames that would consume them. To build, to keep, to be, to snatch, to contend. But friends, it's hard to contend if you live in compromise. I think there are three compromises that plague our church, the American church, the the global church in general, that we need to address this morning. They are promiscuity, adultery, and pornography. And we're going to talk about each one of them. God has a good design. One man, one woman for one lifetime in a covenant relationship called marriage. It's what he's established from the beginning. It's what the scriptures teach over and over again. It is always the only realm in which sex is affirmed as good. But we've become a people whose passivity towards the subject of sexuality has led to a litany of casualties. The silence on the subject of sex from the American church has been deafening. It's not something that we talk about very much. In fact, before first service, I asked Jamie Beckham, I said, what's the record number for the amount of time someone has said sex from this stage in one morning? She said, I don't know. I said, well, whatever it is, I'm about to break it. Today's going to be weird. It's going to be awkward. But it's necessary. Promiscuity has risen from curiosity as much as conformity. And church, where we've gotten it wrong is avoiding the discussion altogether. Somewhere along the way, this line of thinking crept into our, into our minds that if we avoid the discussion, we'll avoid any kind of fascination. If we don't talk about it, people won't think about it and won't be interested in it. I have a question. Have you met middle school boys? It doesn't matter if you're talking about it or not. It's on their mind. But what is God-given should be God-governed. Amen? What is God-given should be God-governed, and sex is part of God's good design for humans. Sex is as much spiritual as it is emotional or physical. It is unique among human activities in that it takes us beyond just a physical space. It is sacred. And because sex has this immense power to unite, it has a power in the opposite direction as well, to divide and destruct. But evil cannot exist on its own. The things that we would point to in our world and say, that's wrong, that's evil. Evil is simply a corruption of what is good. Rust doesn't just exist. Rust is something that happens to a classic car. Evil cannot exist on its own. Evil is a corruption of what is good. And because sex is very good, Satan wants to corrupt it. He wants to create a framework in your mind for viewing it so that you would live in a distorted reality. The church has been a part of a failed framework for talking and thinking about sex. Throughout the mid-90s into the early 2000s, there was a movement called the Purity Movement. Books like I Kiss Dating Goodbye by Joshua Harris were very popular. And the reason it failed is not because it's wrong, it's just not all the way right. Abstinence is not the goal, holiness is. We have to get that right. We have to believe what the scriptures teach. Because there are people who receive the teaching of the purity movement who went one of two directions. 
Either they made their entire sexual existence about abstaining, and then when they got into a marriage relationship, sex still felt wrong and bad, and it created all sorts of issues within their marriage. Or there were those who had already engaged in sexual activity, who received the teaching of the purity movement, and they thought to themselves, I'm damaged goods. What I've done, no one else has done, and therefore, I'm outside of God's love. But purity is as much about activity as it is abstinence. If a metal is being made pure, it goes through a process. There's an action that takes place in order to refine it and to make it its purest form. And so in order to become pure, it's all about the process of the Holy Spirit working in you. It is active as much as it is abstaining. The church... Christians, parents, youth groups, all of us should be working together to provide a unified framework for discussing sex. Because young people will learn what they want to know. And if a subject is off limits, guess where they're going to go? They'll Google it. And they'll be instructed and discipled by someone who is not attached to our faith. The person, the place, the purpose of sex, they all matter. They're important. Many of us are confused or consumed or have been corrupted by sex because we were never given God's instruction on the good design of sex. But sex is like fire. Fire is a good thing in the right context. Fire provides heat and light and comfort. But in the wrong context, it can be destructive and deadly. When you want to have a nice night around the fire, you don't bring a bunch of logs into the middle of your living room and light them up. Put them in the fireplace, because that's where they go. Sex is the same way. There's a design that God intended to lead you to what is good, not to keep you from it. Promiscuity plagues the church. And promiscuity is simply this. It is a wild, no-holds-barred view of sex and sexuality. Nothing's off limits. No one can tell me how to have a sexual experience. I can do whatever I want with whoever I want, whenever I want. It is the exact thing that Jude is condemning in these false teachers who were instructing the church incorrectly. God's good design, again, is intended to set you up for what is good, not to keep you from it. I ran across a a quote from John Piper who said, God is not a killjoy. He's just against things that kill joy. And sex outside God's design will always kill joy. Promiscuity rears its ugly head, I think, in these three ways. Number one, sexting. Now, there are some of us in the room who have never even heard that term before. And there are some of us in the room who are all too familiar with it. It's the act of sending nude or explicit photos or messages on a mobile phone. Studies show that students are having less sex than ever in high school, more than many of the past generations. Some say as little as one-third. And we would all say, that's a great thing. But the, the statistics and the data are a little misleading because the world is digital. And what we don't do in person anymore, we do online. Kids aren't playing outside as much either. They're gaming, they're TikToking, they're Snapchatting, they're FaceTiming. Kids aren't having less sex, they're having more. It's just on the internet. 62% of teens and young adults report receiving a nude image. 
40% of teens and young adults report sending a nude image. And the disparity there between the senders and receivers help us to understand that those who are sending are sending to multiple people. Among those involved in sexting, there is a significant disparity between male and female. 69% of women receive as opposed to 57% of men. Likewise, 51% send who are women as opposed to 33% of men. Sexting is exploiting women sexually in our culture. We also know this, that young people create cultural trends. That what is true for young people, sort of a trickle-up effect, becomes true of adults in our society today. And so sexting is not just something that young people do, it's something that all people do. Chances are, you work with someone, you're related to someone, someone lives in your own household who engages in this activity. And because there's less skin in the game, pun intended, it's much easier to do things online than we would ever do in person. People who would, wouldn't go out and sleep with someone else will still send a nude photo or video or something explicit. We know this is true because there are things we'll say behind a keyboard that we would never say to someone's face. Sex outside God's design is soul-damaging. Because sex is as much soul to soul as it is skin to skin. And sexting is part of perpetuating this myth in our culture that sexual climax is the pinnacle of human experience. I think the second way that promiscuity is rearing its ugly head in our culture today is this idea of cohabitating. Two people who are not married living together. It's often referred to as the test drive. We need to try things out before we know if this marriage will work. This living together thing is going to be okay. But multiple studies, including one from the Journal of Marriage and Family, indicate that those who cohabitate are more likely, significantly more likely, to divorce than those who don't. There are some studies that tried to refute that claim, and what they found out is that even though in the first year, people who come from a state of cohabitation into marriage are less likely, every year after that, the odds increase exponentially. Starting your path towards marriage with a contingency is not setting yourself up for success. And cohabitating is outside of God's design because it is outside the covenantal commitment that Scripture calls us to make to each other and to God. I think the third way promiscuity rears its head is this, hookup culture that I can go out and sleep with whoever I want because sex is merely a physical transaction. There's an app called Tinder. Maybe some of you are familiar with it. Tinder is a dating app in which you can see an image of someone and in an instant you swipe left or right to indicate whether or not you would want to go on a date or likely sleep with that person. Now, while Tinder isn't necessarily innately bad, what it has created is a cancer for our culture. It's this idea that I can just go sleep with whoever I want and I'll find them in an instant. Uses GPS tracking to find people in your immediate area. You can swipe right if you want to go have sex. There's an estimated 1.6 billion swipes on Tinder per day. The promulgation of casual sex has exploded in the last decade and it is on the premise that sex is merely a physical transaction. But hookup culture teaches us to treat people like property. 
And friends, in a world that's so concerned with justice for others and equality for other people, it's alarming why we don't apply those same rules to sex and sexuality. We don't treat people like they are people. We treat them like property. We use them for what we want them for, and then we discard them. Sex is intended to be a catalyst that creates a lasting bond between two people, but when it is diluted, when it is used outside of that sacred context, it can't accomplish the purpose for which it was created. Levi Lusco, a a popular preacher and author, speaker, writes a book on that very idea. It's called Swipe Right. It's a really good resource. Parents especially, I recommend it to you. Here's what he says. When you have all the sex you want, anywhere you want, with whomever you want, there's nothing sacred or special about it. The more people you choose to have sex with, the less the experience means. Easy come, easy go. Common is the opposite of special. Beached fish don't die because there isn't enough oxygen, but because there is too much. Sex is far more than physical. We know this because of how we prosecute it. Those who are guilty of sex crimes receive much more extreme punishments than those who are guilty of simple assault. Something happens during sex at a far deeper level than just physical. And God's sexual ethic, one man, one woman, one lifetime in a covenant relationship called marriage, it would solve almost all of the issues we face today as a culture. The Me Too epidemic, rape culture on college campuses, the disease of divorce, the porn problem, predatory sexual practices. The list goes on and on and on. If we would live inside God's design, all of those things would disappear. Second compromise we make is adultery. Whether we want to admit it or not, promiscuity sets us on a path to adultery later in life. Because marriage doesn't suddenly solve all of our sexual issues. If we don't live faithfully before marriage, do we really expect to live faithfully in a marriage? What's fascinating about adultery, though, is that even in mainstream culture, it's still condemned. You don't have to be a person of faith. You don't have to believe what the Bible teaches about sex to say that cheating is wrong. People are still shamed because they cheat on a spouse. In a 2014 study, which is admittedly dated, found that 35% of married men and 17% of married women were engaged in extramarital affairs. I think seven years later, having poured gasoline on the fire of sex outside God's design, those numbers are significantly higher. But 90% of people who engage in an extramarital affair will do it again. In the early 2000s, a website called Ashley Madison was created, and their tagline was this, life is short, have an affair. And in 2015, a group of hackers hacked into their database and gathered all the private information of everyone who had signed up to go out and have an adulterous relationship. They held that information ransom and ultimately released it on the dark web. And it was released and the list was lengthy. Millions of people. Dusty just told me in between services that there were only three zip codes in the entire United States that didn't have someone who signed up for that website. Only three. Life isn't short. Life is eternal. 
It matters what we do. Because adultery destroys families. God establishes the family to create safety, identity, community for all of its members. And when we rip that apart, it's not just you that's affected, it's everyone. It is a destruction of the institution that God deems is a representation of his covenantal love with the church. God says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. When we fail to do that, we fail to represent God well. Third compromise we make is pornography. This is a big one. In fact, I believe this is the single most damaging sin in our culture, in our church, and in your family today. There's an excellent book. It's called The Porn Myth. It's not a Christian resource, but it is a secular author who has written about the disaster that is the pornographic industry. He says this, if you want something to flourish, use it in accordance with its nature. Don't plant tomatoes in a dark closet and water them with soda and expect to have vibrant tomato plants. To do so would be to act contrary to the nature of tomatoes. Similarly, don't rip sex out of its obvious relational context. Turn it into a commodity and then expect individuals, families, and societies to flourish. If we become a civilization that sells people, a civilization that takes something so central to who we are as persons, our sexuality, and industrialize it, we cannot be happy people. This boom of pornography can be traced with the introduction of the internet and especially the smartphone into our world. The average age that a young male is introduced to pornography is age 11. The average age. The average age that a young person gets a smartphone in our world today. You'll never guess what the age is. 11. According to Barna, who's a research group based in California, they say this, 49% of young adults say all their friends use porn regularly. Only 8% of males, excuse me, only 8% of young adults say their friends don't consume pornography at all. 67% of males ages 13 to 24 report using porn regularly, and 47% of males ages 25 and up report using porn regularly. These are startling statistics, but it, it gets worse because Barna is a Christian organization. And they will tell you it is likely that the people that they pull are under-reporting. So when we look at secular examples, the numbers get more crazy. According to other research groups, 70% of men in general watch porn. 30% of, men, of women watch porn, and it's increasing every week. Porn sites account for more traffic than Netflix, Amazon, and Twitter combined in 2020. I want you to think about 2020 again for a minute. What were we all doing? We're sitting at home. We're shipping stuff to our house in two days and we're watching Netflix episodes like it's our job. And porn sites had more traffic than all three of those combined. According to HR professionals, porn was found on two out of every three work computers. 30% of all information transferred across the internet, not just website browsing. All information transferred across the internet is pornographic. There's a researcher from the University of Montreal. I can't pronounce his last name, but we'll call him Dr. Simon. He said this, we started our research seeking men in their 20s who had never consumed pornography. We couldn't find any. There's an incredible website called Fight the New Drug. It's leading the charge against the pornographic in industry. It is a non-faith-based uh, 
destination. They say this, 75% of parents believe their child had never encountered porn. Of those children who were polled, whose parents said they had never encountered it, more than 53% said that they had. One study showed that almost half of those who surveyed said their porn tastes and preferences escalated to the point of them being interested in more extreme versions of pornography that previously disgusted them. They reiterate the data that porn websites account for more traffic than Twitter, Instagram, Netflix, Zoom, Pinterest, and LinkedIn combined. This is the most troubling one to me. The teen porn category has topped site searches for the last seven years. There are all kinds more statistics. There's stuff on child porn, and it's alarming. There's a mountain of information here that we could get into. We just don't have time. In 2019 alone, the equivalent of nearly 6,650 centuries of porn were consumed in one year. Porn isn't harmless. It has the same effect on the brain that drugs do. It releases the same chemicals, if not more and greater. Porn is proven to perpetuate human trafficking. Porn is proven to lead to more violent relationships. Porn is proven to cause greater social anxiety and depression. Porn is proven to ruin relationships. And there's virtually no disparity between Christians and non-Christians in the consumption of porn. So you're wrong if you think your son couldn't possibly. You're wrong if you think your husband is strong enough. You're wrong if you think girls don't look at porn. Girls ages 13 to 24 is the fastest growing group of porn consumers in the world. And you're wrong if you think you can handle this sin struggle on your own. Sex is deeply spiritual. And so all of our attempts to gain physical or emotional pleasure divorced from the spiritual nature of what it means means we'll never be truly satisfied with sex because we're simply pursuing carnal lusts. The adrenaline is there, but not the satisfaction. True fulfillment comes from being fully known and understood. And all of these cheap imitations of God's good design will never provide the thing that we desperately seek. Evil is what happens to something good. Evil can't exist on its own. So the desire of the devil is not to take away what is good, but to corrupt it in order that people have to believe that what they're doing, desiring, or participating is right and good. There's a chemical that releases in your brain called oxytocin. Scientists call it the cuddle chemical. And it is released in three different scenarios. When a woman gives birth to a child, oxytocin is released in her brain. When she breastfeeds that child, released in her brain and in the mind of that child in small doses. And its most extreme release happens during sex and intimate relationship. Oxytocin is literally what binds one human to another. It's the reason that God created a good design, one man, one woman, for one lifetime, and a covenant commitment called marriage. Because the more the oxytocin is released in our brain, the more it numbs our senses to anything that would actually be true, lasting fulfillment. 
You can bond to a screen and never be able to bond to another human. Louis Giglio says this, you can't put a condom on your soul. Sex is as much soul to soul as it is skin to skin. This misuse of sex leads to misery, and what was intended to become a bonding force will become a bludgeoning one. So porn isn't something, church, that we can pretend just doesn't exist or isn't an issue in your own life or family. It's a real big deal. I've been a youth pastor for a while. A few years years ago, we went to CIY with my church in Dallas. We decided it was time to get serious. Some of my students had admitted to some struggles, and so let's just sit everybody down and talk about it. There were over 20 of us gathered in a small room at a CIY conference. If you've been to one of these things before, you know what I'm talking about. We went around the room, and over 20 high school boys, every single one of them admitted to having at least a struggle, if not an addiction, to pornographic material. These are good kids. These are kids who love Jesus. These are kids who, some of whom are at Bible college right now. These are kids who had great parents, grew up in church. Can't just turn a blind eye to this stuff and pretend like it doesn't plague us. So what do we do? Jude tells us to resist. He says, but you, dear friends, build each other up in your most holy faith and pray in the power of the Holy Spirit and await the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ who will bring you eternal life in this way you will keep yourself safe in God's love. What does it mean to build each other up? It means that we don't become shocked when we learn that there's sin in our lives and in our families. We don't jump to shame. We support each other. It means we're honest about our own sin struggles so that we can be made strong through the Spirit of God. It means we recognize we have a collective integrity as a body and we realize that our individual integrity affects the collective. It means we are ruthless about rooting out sin in our homes and in our church, but that we restore each other gently. It means that we submit fully and faithfully to Jesus. You'll remember Jude. Jude does not rebuke those who are caught in the crossfire, simply those who create the controversy. So if you're caught in the crossfire of sexual sin, I'm here to tell you, God loves you with no reservation. There's no qualifications that you have to meet in order to be a person who God loves. There's nothing that you've done or that has been done to you that removes you from the conversation of God's love. And so while we will rebuke the ideology, we should make it our ambition to restore the individual. Jude concludes with this, verse 22 and 23, and you must show mercy to those whose faith is wavering. Rescue others by snatching them from the flames of judgment. Show mercy to still others, but do so with great caution, hating the sins that contaminate their lives. Let's be a church that contends for the faith of other people. It isn't content to sit on the sidelines and watch people live lives of compromise. That doesn't destroy other people verbally or tear them down or be a people who shame others, but we fight for them. A few years ago, in Dallas, we lived in some apartments, and I went out for a run one day, laced up my shoes, and took off down our apartment complex drive, and it led into a neighborhood. There was a loop about a half mile long that I would just run sometimes. 
And so I was out on a run, and I was running my loop, and I'd gone around once, and I was on my second time through, and there was a little tiny dog that was sitting in the front yard. And that dog probably just been let out to go to the bathroom, and it was kind of like a, I don't know what it was, about the size of a chihuahua. Kind of yappy and just really energetic, and it takes off chasing after me. You've ever been chased by something, your first reaction is to go, whoa, right? So I start running faster. I'm like, man, I got to outrun this dog. I'm already tired. What do, you know? And so I realize in that moment, Joel, what are you doing? This dog is punctable. <laughs> you can pick this thing up and do whatever you want to it. I stopped right there. I just turned around and just like that at the dog. And it ran back home, scared to death, right? I'm never going to be scared of a little dog again. Friends, the devil is a tiny dog. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. The problem and the solution come from the same place. Jude says these people are devoid of the Holy Spirit. They don't have the Spirit of God in them. But we do. God's Spirit is powerful. It's far more powerful than any sin you've committed. It's far more powerful than any struggle you find yourself in right now. It's the very thing God wants to give you and increase in you so that you can overcome. Today is not about shame. It's about the Spirit of God. It's about realizing that the only thing you have to fear is a tiny little dog who can't do anything to you because God's far bigger. You might be struggling today with some of the things that we've been talking about. In fact, chances are there's a lot of us in here. The struggle is a part of every good story. Frodo doesn't just walk in one line from uh, Rivendell straight to Mordor. There's a lot of struggle along the way. Struggle means the Spirit of God is working on you and in you. Struggle means the Spirit still has a hold of your heart. If you want to overcome sin, don't focus on not doing your sin. Focus on responding to the Spirit of God. It's hard to contend when you're compromised, but the key to overcoming that compromise is simply confession. In 1 John, the apostle writes this, 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, if we confess our sin, He is faithful to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God is the one who does the cleansing. God is the one who does the taking care. God does for us what we can't do for ourselves. All we need to do is just be honest about where we are. So we need to probably go home today and have some tough conversations. We need to be people who, as Jude encourages us to do, pray in the Holy Spirit that the Spirit would take hold of the hearts of the people that we love and our own hearts. And we need to remember that that spirit, as Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.7, God has not given us a spirit of fear or timidity, but of power and of love and of self-discipline. That kind of spirit is the only way we overcome a struggle with sin. I love that First John, in that passage, he goes on to say, if we claim we have no sin, we're only fooling ourselves. We're only fooling ourselves. We're only fooling ourselves if we think the sin that we're dealing with right now, we're the only one. By every metric, every statistic, all of these sexual sins plague our church. You're not the only one. 
So let's not be finger-pointing people. Let's be mercy people. Let's be people who build each other up in faith. Let's be people who keep each other safe in God's love by praying over and with and for people constantly. Let's be people who are people of mercy. And let's be people who rush into burning buildings and snatch others from the flames that would seek to consume their lives. It's hard to contend when you're compromised. But all you need to do today, just to be honest, just to be honest, let's pray. God, we thank you. Thank you that our sin does not keep us from you. God, you made your way through all of it, through the filth of our world. God, you've rescued us. And more than that, you provided your spirit to live in us and walk with us, to work through us. So God, help us not to believe the tiny seed of doubt that Satan has placed in our minds, that we can't be honest about what we're dealing with right now. God, it is a strong person who admits where they're weak. And we trust people who are honest. Would you help us to be honest so that we can trust each other? We can be people who contend well for our faith. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.